0: Think of a situation where someone you know did something that was really wrong. Maybe they betrayed your trust, cursed you out, or lied about you. For all appearances, it looks like they're going to get off scot-free. They never ask you for forgiveness. They're more successful than ever. Does this kind of injustice bother you? I want you to know that it bothers me. I'm Mary Wordson, and this is Truth Encounter, a program committed to challenging you to get close to the biblical Christ. The popular picture of Jesus is that He is soft and cuddly, never dangerous. This is a gross misjudgment, and it is why we need the final book of the Bible, Revelation. Today our study leader, my husband Dave, takes us to Revelation chapter 9, like an Alfred Hitchcock thriller, This chapter is filled with locust plagues and the execution of justice against God's enemies. If you ever wonder whether or not there will be justice on this planet, stay tuned, and let's join Dave for this message titled, Abaddon, the Demonic Destroyer.
1: Grasshoppers, they are everywhere this summer. I go out running in a field that's close to my house and you get out there and manage your running they jump on your back they jump on your legs they jump on your head it's awful in fact I feel a little bit like Hans Hans was talking to me about the grasshoppers uh when we were down in Tyler and he said man I don't let one of those grasshoppers get away from me in fact what I try to do is I try to chase them down and when I grab them I take their head and I yank it off you know now I don't want to do any psychological analysis But if ever there was a group of people that could understand Revelation chapter 9, it's you all. As Texans, we understand the plague of locusts. In fact, in the Middle East, these are heinous things, even much worse than just the irritation that we have in Texas. Although I'm sure some of our ranchers and farmers don't feel it's an irritation as they've lost their crops. But I've got it kind of in 1926, a guy named Bauer was in the Middle East... He mentioned that swarms of locusts flew overhead for five days, darkening the sky and leaving droppings everywhere. During this time, males and females mated. The females each then deposited clumps of 50 to 80 eggs in uncultivated ground, about 5 to 8 centimeters deep. And after 30 to 40 days, the young locusts, each about 1 centimeter in length, began to hatch. With another five to six weeks, they had grown to a length of five to seven centimeters, their appetite increasing proportionately. No wonder, when you hear that kind of a description, no wonder that Joel used the plague of locusts in Joel chapter 2 to describe an incredible invasion that was going to come upon the people of Israel. Just to give you a little bit of feel of the ominousness of, of locusts... ...in the 1870s in Algeria... ...there was a plague of locusts like Bauer just described to you... ...and in this plague of locusts because of the devastation that came... ...upon the agriculture of the land of Algeria... ...200,000 people died. So you can imagine you know, that when you mention the Middle East... ...like to us in Texas, it's kind of like a summer scourge... But in the Middle East, when certain conditions take place in the desert... And the locusts are not able to get enough vegetation. They swarm and then the wind blows them. These hot desert winds blow in off the eastern sands. They blow in over the land of Israel. And the Israelites would understand, and anyone living in the Middle East would understand, how this plague of millions upon millions of locusts just coming and just stripping everything would become a tremendous, ominous, fearful, dreadful scourge that would come. Now, Revelation chapter 9 is going to use that kind of an Alfred Hitchcock. Hitchcock knew the power of that kind of imagery. In other words, when he does a film like The Birds or when he does Psycho, he, it's not what he shows you so much, but it's like the, the ominousness of what takes place in your imagination. And that's the way you need to interpret Revelation chapter 9. As We open up to the trumpet judgments. In chapter 8, we looked at the first four trumpet judgments. We found out that they were attacks... ...against the people that were persecuting those that were sealed by God. As we open up to Revelation chapter 8... ...we had the saints praying. We had a picture of the throne room in heaven. We had the saints praying that the Lord would vindicate them. And one of the things we learn in the book of Revelation is... ...that the Lord God in heaven... ...though right now we're living in the age of grace... ...and it looks like a lot of things just are let go... How many of you have ever raised the issue of why isn't there justice? We talked about like last week when bad things happen to bad people. And we raised that issue of why doesn't God do something? We talked about the fact that now we're living in a time of grace. For by grace are you saved through faith. And that none of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. But the book of Revelation teaches us and it warns us against ever taking God's grace lightly. Because in the tribulation period, as things begin to polarize, and Antichrist begins to gain power over planet Earth, and he begins to attack the people of God, and the people of God, there are many martyrs, thousands upon thousands of martyrs, people losing their life, they're beginning to call out to God, God, how long are you going to let this go on? We saw that in Revelation 6, we see it again in Revelation 8. How long will you let this go on? Revelation 8 and 9 is God beginning to answer that questions As he begins to pour out, first of all, natural plagues against the kingdom of Antichrist. And today, in the trumpet judgments that we look at today, we have demonic hordes. A tremendous demonic plague that comes upon the people of God. We learn some things that are very important. As we look at this chapter, you need to enter into this visually. You need to try to picture in your mind. We also need to try to see behind this imagery, because remember in Revelation chapter 1, John said that God was going to signify, he was going to picture for him, what he wanted John to communicate to his audience. One of the great problems I find, and it's really amazing, interpreters kind of go back and forth as they interpret the book of Revelation, and many times they forget the idea that John is signifying things. For example, to give you an idea of what we're talking about, in Revelation 5, we were introduced to the lamb standing as if he was slain. We were introduced to Jesus in the heavenly court, and he was pictured as a lamb with a wound, standing as if he'd been slain. Now, does that mean literally when you get to heaven that you're going to see a literal lamb, and you're going to pet a literal white lamb, and you're going to be able to touch his wounds? No. It's a very powerful imagery. Remember when I spoke to you about that? I said, whoever named the football team the lambs? And yet in the book of Revelation, this incredible lamb is the conquering lamb. And John brings this powerful image of a lamb standing as if he was slain to remind us of the sacrifice of Christ and the great victory that he has. And this image in our mind, this picture of a lamb that was slain for us, moves us emotionally. It reminds us of the sacrifice that Jesus made for us. But we're not thinking in terms of a literal lamb. We need to remember that same kind of technique of communication. And and John was, you know, it's almost modern the way that he does it. Because all of you are into very symbolic art. If you're into modern art at all, it's all uh, symbolic and figurative. And they use different images to communicate different emotions to you. You've got to enter into that in the book of Revelation. There's one group that literalizes everything... ...and then they miss the power of that imagery. There's another group that makes it all imagery... ...and they deny any reality behind it. Though you're not going to see Jesus as a baba lamb... You are going to see Jesus, and he was wounded for you. And the idea of him being the lamb is that he's the one that gave his life for us, and you will see Jesus. You see, the symbol, though it's a figure, powerfully communicates it to us reality. As we open up to Revelation chapter 9, we're introduced to a very strange chapter. Because we get kind of an insight into what's going on in the subterranean world. There's a part of all of your psyches that comes out strongly. When people tell you ghost stories, you can fall off that kind of a thing, which is relatively innocent. You can fall into occult worship and the dark side, and you'll go to a library and you see the the books on the occult. And that's a part of your personality. As young people begin to grow up. They begin to get a fascination with the dark side, with the darkness, with what's in the smoke, with what's in the shadows. And it's a very powerful thing that's inside of you. Revelation 9 gives you a chance to hear your Savior... ...tell us what's really in the pit. You see, there can be a fascination with the pit... ...and one of the things that Jesus wants to do... ...is to get something really across to you... ...and one of the major things is that Satan wants to destroy you. Often we forget that. You see, when Faust made his his pact with the devil... It was a pact with destruction. In other words, it would bring him success, it would bring him prosperity, it might bring him youth for a time, but in the end, because Satan hates us and he's hated us from the Garden of Eden, he's going to destroy us. And his demonic hordes will bring pain to you, not salvation, not victory. One of the ideas that come to cross in Revelation chapter 9 is that demons hate you, they want to bring you pain, they want to hurt you. Demons also produce an incredible craziness of violence. In our culture right now, every single week, every single week that goes by, we hear about another violent, cruel act. And our culture asks in the news, why is this going on? I want you to know it's called the commandments. Thou shalt not murder. And the connection we have in Revelation chapter 9 is that when we worship things... When we worship gold and silver and precious stones and wood, we worship stuff. We live for materialism that what we do is we're on a slide. You worship things and you end up being violent, you end up being immoral, and you end up stealing. It's the idolatry breaking commandment syndrome. You worship idols, you worship things, and it yields cruel violence immorality and thieves it leads to stealing and what Revelation chapter 9 is, is it pictures these horrible plagues that represent the 5th and 6th trumpet judgments that come blasting forth upon planet earth during the tribulation period let's look at it in Revelation chapter 9 the 5th angel sounded his trumpet and I saw a star it's a star that had fallen from the sky to the earth the star was given the key to the shaft of the abyss In the book of Revelation, a star can equal an angel or a messenger of God. In Revelation chapter 1, we were introduced to stars who were the seven stars who became the seven human messengers that John gave the parchment scrolls to that brought the book of Revelation to the seven churches of Asia. For the rest of the book of Revelation, usually the angels are involved in being sent from God. They are supernatural beings that are the servants of God. Just like Gabriel was sent to bring the message to the Virgin Mary. We have angels that are sent in the book of Revelation to bring a judgment down upon planet earth. And that's what's going on here, I believe. that this star that was fallen, I believe that it's one of the angels of God... Just like if you look at the beginning of chapter 10, it says, Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven. I think it's a very similar phrase. So we have God sending one of his angels, and this angel is given the key to the shaft of the abyss. Now, what in the world is this abyss? The word in English, abyss, is not a word that we use often. But if you think of an abyss in English, it means this great big pit. In when when John's readers initially heard John mention the abyss, like when they were reading this letter in Ephesus, they would think in terms, the Jewish people in the audience would think in terms of Genesis chapter one. And they would think in terms of the deep. They're using Hebrew a word to calm, and it and it means this incredible depth of the ocean. You've ever been out at sea and you look down into the depths of the ocean, especially at night when you're on an ocean liner and you get on the bow of the ship and you look down over the side and you look down into, and we talk about, we look down into the depths. And if you think of jumping off that ship and falling into those depths, you're thinking about destruction. That's the way the Hebrews would hear this word, the abyss. It has that terror of I'm falling into a great pit. I remember when we're up in Montana, there was a place where the water of the Boulder River came down, and then it dug a hole down deep through this rock, and it went for several, maybe about 400 yards underneath these rocks, plunging about another thousand feet, and then it blasted forth at the bottom into the river, which was several hundred feet below the area where we were standing. And I remember, you know, looking at that rushing water going into that abyss. And, you know, somebody was saying, hey, man, that would make a great ride. Man, you could jump in there and, you know, you go flying through. It'd be better than six flags. And I'm thinking, you've got to be kidding. You go in there and you're going to get ground up. It's going to be the end of you. And that that tremendous horror comes over you. You've all had that feeling. That's the feeling of the abyss. In the Lord Jesus' ministry when he set free the man that was the Gadarene demoniac, and he was acting crazy, and the demons were cast out of them, and they said, don't send us into the abyss, into the pit, let us go into the herd of swine. Remember, the demons went into the herd of swine, and then they ran down the cliff into the sea and were destroyed. But there he had that idea. The demons don't want to be imprisoned in this place, that's the abyss, this pit. And so we have Jesus himself entering in to this idea that there's some place, there's a place that's like a a holding tank for demonic beings, for the henchmen of the evil one. And that's a very real thing. What I want you to realize, it's not saying in this text that you can drill down from the crust of the earth and go right down to the core of the earth and about maybe three-quarters of the way down, you're going to hit the abyss and you're going to let demons out. It's not what it's saying. It's figurative language, and the, but the language communicates powerfully to us. We all feel this idea of the deep and the abyss... ...and entering into a pit where you just go and go and go and go. And this pit is like a gigantic furnace... ...because it says that when he opens the abyss... ...smoke rises from it like the smoke from a gigantic furnace. And so this is hell. This is not the final hell. It's not the final lake of fire... ...that Satan and his henchmen... ...and all those that are not found written in the book of life... ...are going to be in... ...but this is like a temporary place... ...where God holds... ...some of the demonic beings. Very possibly also... ...Jesus talks when he talks about the... ...the rich man and Lazarus... ...he talks about a place that's very similar to this... but ...would be a place where those... ...that die without Christ. Now I want to, to say something... ...in our culture today... ...the idea of the abyss... The idea of there being a place where the, those that don't have the belief in Jesus and those that don't trust in him will be suffering is totally unheard of. We want to deny that as Americans. The reason we deny that is we don't understand the, the incredible heinousness, the incredible infectiousness, the incredible destructiveness of evil. In other words, what we have here in the book of Revelation, we have have evil exposed for us in the way that it really is. In our culture, it's not until evil really hits us. Like when somebody rapes one of our daughters, when somebody commits violence against our house and breaks into our house, when somebody vandalizes our car, suddenly we get really serious about the need for there to be judgment. Judgment. Well, if you multiply that a million, million, million times, you'll feel a little bit what God feels when people break his moral, ethical rules. That's why his son had to die. Jesus died because our sin is really that bad. And Jesus took the penalty that we deserved. But if you don't respond to what Jesus did for you, if you don't receive the gift that God wants to give you, then I want you to know that there's going to be Justice, And the abyss gives us a feel for what that justice is like. I believe that there's not a literal place that is in the core of the earth where there's fire burning, and and intellectuals can easily make a joke of that. And they can ask questions like, how can there be a fire when it says that it's outer darkness? And when you talk like that, what you're doing is you say, well, the literal thing couldn't possibly be true, but you're also saying, well, I know all the kinds of fire there are. I know all the different kinds of darkness that there are. And you're also failing to get the point of what God is saying is that there's a place that's like darkness. There's a place that's like fire. There's a place where I use all these physical things that are heinous to us. And we think of fire burning us and hurting us. We think of smoke that's rising up and hurting our eyes and and making it so we can't see. And we think of being in smoke where we we can't see where we're going, so it makes us be paralyzed and, and that we're fearful because of that. All of that imagery is involved in what John's portraying to us. And I want you to realize that there really is a Satan. There's really demonic hordes that are underneath his control. And you can't explain the heinousness of human evil. As you look through human history and the evil that's present in our culture today, you can't explain it just in terms of human psyche. And human influences and genetic influences. And you need to understand that. Because if you start messing around with the evil one, he bites and he bites really hard. Because he hates you. I have a strong terror about getting involved with the occult or with evil or with wickedness at all. I have a great fear of it. It's just as strong as that fear that I had when I was standing on the top of that rock and all I had to do was just jump one foot and I can plunge into that abyss and be smashed through those rocks in Montana. I have just as strong a fear. It holds me back from doing wrong when I look into the abyss of what Revelation 9 is talking about. I want you to see, though, as we think about this evil, John is also telling us that God is the one who ultimately holds the key. What it means here is that Satan's able to do his thing. He's able to go out into the world. He's able to wreak his destruction. But he can only go so far. God only permits him. The idea of the angel opening up the abyss is that Revelation is telling us who's really, really in control. And that's very important. That's why you worship Jesus. It's why we honor him. Because ultimately, when all is said and done, Satan's not the one with the power, ultimately. Satan's not the one with the authority openly. God's the one who can send even one of his angels, not even one of the triune God, one of the Trinity, but he can send one of his angels and they can open up the abyss and they can allow the demons to have so much sway, so much room, but it's ultimately under the control of God. And boy, we need to say a hearty amen, because if that wasn't so, then our reality that we're living in would be incredibly bad. What Revelation is telling us is that even though evil breaks forth, there's a craziness to it, there's a chaosness to it, there's pain in it. He's saying it can only go so far, even in the final days of the ultimate expression of evil during the tribulation period. So that's the idea of this abyss. The abyss. He opened the abyss and smoke rose out of it. And from the smoke, from the gigantic furnace, the sun and sky were darkened by the smoke from the abyss. And out of the smoke, locusts came down upon the earth. And they were given power like that of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any plant or tree... ...but only those people who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were not given power to kill them, but only to torture them for five months. And the agony they suffered was like that of the sting of scorpions when it strikes a man. During those days men will seek death but will not find it. They will long to die, but death will elude them. We have this plague of locusts. What's going on? Out of the smoke that rises from the abyss are these incredibly weird locusts, these incredible grasshoppers. You know, what's going on? Because they're not human. They're not like the normal grasshoppers, which we've been exposed to this summer. that eat all the plants, and they they don't really bite us. They don't really hurt us, but they destroy all the vegetation. These grasshoppers are pictured as not touching any of that. They only touch human beings, and they do it, For about the same period as locusts live on the earth, they begin in the spring, they go through the early fall, just about a period of about five months. What's going on here? When John was writing to Jewish people in his audience, they would think in terms of Joel, because Joel used this idea of a plague of locusts to stand for a gigantic army that was invading. And so they would picture this gigantic army that was coming in. In fact, it often in the ancient Israelite history would often be the nation of Babylon, for example, or earlier the nation of Assyria. And the prophets would picture these incredible invasions coming as being like a locust invasion. In fact, Joel speaks probably about some of the ultimate invasions that come during the tribulation period. And so they would be thinking in terms of the horror of this, only in this case... It's not an invasion of human soldiers that are coming. It's an invasion of demonic forces. Just like when Jesus was here upon the earth. We have Jesus going about from one town to the next. And he casts demons out. Remember some of the things that the demons did. Some of them were able to cause a person to cast himself into the fire. Like a boy will repeatedly cast himself into the fire and be burned. You'll have other uh, children that will have like, terrible fits terrible fits that need to be cured by the Lord Jesus. In other words, we see these demonic beings inflicting pain upon different people that Jesus comes in contact with and our Savior sets them free. What we have in the picture of the locust, the locust would bring up this tremendous horror in the audience he was running to, both Jews and Gentiles, that knew about what it was like to see a plague of locusts like I shared in the introduction. They would hear this horror, and it would be like an Alfred Hitchcock movie to them, that you've got this terrible plague that's coming over them, and that horror that would come. And unlike natural locusts, these locusts inflict pain, and it mentions another heinous symbol, a scorpion.
0: Locust scorpions. I don't want to have anything to do with the literal variety or the dark demonic forces they represent. Paul declared in his letter to the Colossians that Jesus has conquered all these enemies. He writes, And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Those who have been sealed by the cross of Christ need not fear the sting of any of Satan's minions. Dave and I have placed our allegiance firmly in the camp of Jesus. Have you come to this decision in your life? Jesus is the powerful champion who alone can conquer the evil in the world, but also the evil that dwells inside each of our hearts. He wants to take up residence in your life, but you need to ask Him to come in. This was the invitation He presented in Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, and He's still knocking at your heart's door. Don't hesitate to open the door.